You're listening to Always Player One, a solo board gaming podcast. Hello and welcome to Always Player One. I'm Scruffy. And I'm Norm. And today we're going to be talking about Aeon's End as a system in general, but more specifically, the legacy version. We'll also be opening up the discussion to talk about a number of different things, including narrative-driven games and emergent narrative in games as well. So yeah, but before we dive in, we have a very special announcement this episode. We are releasing a new reward for our Patreons, and that is a bonus episode. This is called Planning Phase, is exclusive to Patreon users, and it will be released on every off week. So as you know, this is a fortnightly podcast. In between each episode, we'll give you this Planning Phase episode. What it is, is a behind-the-scenes look at how we choose our next game and our next topic. So at the moment, Scruffy and I don't know what we're going to be covering. We're going to unpack that right after we finish recording. We've got a few ideas. We'll bounce them back and forward. We'll look up some games, look up some topics, and see what we want to cover next and give you guys that behind-the-scenes look at what's on the horizon and how we kind of do things at Always Player One. Couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what it is. It's a nice little kind of behind-the-scenes glimpse into our process as we work things out, bring in maybe things you guys have mentioned in previous episodes or that we've mentioned and we're excited to play and we'll uh, give you a glimpse into how we make our decision as to what to play next and just some bonus material as a thank you it was important that when we were deciding the patreon rewards that we weren't taking anything away we still want to give you the full always player one experience you still get the fortnightly podcast you still get the free discord but if you uh if you do want to sign up to patreon that's just a little bonus episode every every two weeks Yes, and in addition, we are streaming a game of Iron Sworn. That's the second session that me and Norm have streamed. The first stream we did a little while ago now. It'll be coming out on the day of release of this podcast. We'll be doing the stream at 3 p.m. It'll be up on Twitch for a couple of weeks after we finish, and I'll upload it onto my YouTube after that. So that'll be fun. Uh, it's the system we talked about in episode nine, Iron Sworn, but played cooperatively with me and norm should be a lot of fun so check that out if you're interested yeah really looking forward to carrying on carrying on the session you know the first one was was excellent i enjoyed it a lot so looking forward to exploring that world more now without any further ado should we crack on with the episode scruffy let's do this so let's uh, just give you a quick overview of how the game plays. Aeon's End is a one to four cooperative game in which you play as breach mages who attempt to overcome a nemesis. We are mainly going to be talking about the legacy version, as Norm mentioned, um, but the core mechanics are the same for both. So in the legacy game, you start by choosing up to four mages. In solo, it is recommended that you choose one or two mages. They all start the same and develop differences as you play through the chapters. So the choice at the start is purely aesthetic. After this, you will set up the a turn order deck with four player cards and two nemesis cards. Then you follow the story of the chapter and eventually will be instructed to draw the nemesis for that chapter. Each nemesis has its own cards and these are combined with some basic cards used in every encounter to form the nemesis deck. 
These cards are tiered into three tiers and are set to the top, middle, and bottom thirds of the deck, meaning the impact of the cards ramps up as the game goes on. To win the game, you must reduce the nemesis to zero health or survive all of the cards in its deck. You lose if all the mages are reduced to zero health or if the town Gravehold is destroyed. This is a separate health bar tracked throughout the game. Every turn, the top card of the order deck is revealed and either the indicated player or the nemesis will then act. Once all cards have been drawn from this deck, it is shuffled and placed face down so the order varies between cycles of the deck. On a nemesis turn, you simply resolve any cards it has in play already, from oldest to newest, then draw a card from the nemesis deck and resolve any immediate effects. There are three types of nemesis card, creatures, powers and attacks. On a player's turn, they will start by casting prepped spells that do damage to either the nemesis or its creatures. Then they will play the cards in their hand, generating ether with gems, prepping any spells and playing any relics for their effects. Ether is mainly used to buy new, more powerful cards from the supplies, which are immediately placed in the player's discard. It can also be used to focus the breaches in front of the player, on which spells are prepped. These are simply square cards, which are rotated 90 degrees whenever they are focused. They can also be opened, turned face up. This is important because spells can only be prepped on an open breach, or one which was focused that turn. One spell per breach. After playing all their cards, players draw five cards from their deck. If their deck ever runs out, the player forms a new one with their discard pile, but does not shuffle it like you do in most deck builders. Once an encounter is over, you will read the next section of the story. If you win, you continue on. Losing might mean facing the same nemesis again. Everything gets reset for the next encounter, and any cards bought are returned to the supply. Then you will unlock various mechanics and abilities for your mages, and also the supply where you buy new cards will be altered as two cards always replaced between chapters. Bit of a long one, but that's an overview of Aeon's End Legacy. Yeah, well, there's a lot to get through, isn't there? Because there's, you know, the, the basic game and then the legacy elements and how and when they're triggered and come into play. So, yeah, I appreciate that that took a little bit longer. Yeah, if you've played any legacy games, it should all be fairly familiar. You unlock new mechanics as you go throughout the game. And we should mention right now that we will be spoiling mechanics for the uh, for the game, but we will avoid any story spoilers and things like that. I feel like it'd be impossible to talk about the mechanics and how they work within a broader context if we're trying to keep anything back about how the, what mechanics come up during the game. So be warned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are plenty of places online where you can hear people talk about the game without any spoilers at all, but it's just such a bare-bones conversation or bare-bones review or analysis. It's really probably not even worth watching at all. So we won't talk about the story. You can still explore all of that yourself. But yeah, let's let's dive into the mechanisms in this in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a real kind of hush hush mentality about legacy games, isn't there? And that's you know totally fair if you don't want to spoil any surprises and stuff. But I think you know in order to actually talk about the game, we need to talk about the mechanics of the game, don't we? So yeah. Exactly. Brilliant. So yeah, I've got so many talking points to go over for this episode. Mm. Let's start with yourself, Scruffy. What did? How did you find Aeon's End? I had an absolute blast playing it. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, it's funny because uh, I went into it kind of a bit wary, you know, multi-handed, which is how I played 
two mages. I was I was like, okay, let's see if we can redeem multi-handed play for me. And it absolutely, totally did. I uh, had a real good time. Um, you know, I've talked about in previous episodes how I find it difficult to play multi-handed with things like Spirit Island because I get a bit of brain burn. The way that it works in Aeon's End, it allows you to kind of dart between the two characters. And because the, the turn order is determined not by you choosing who goes first, but by a deck of cards. So you get a kind of indication as to who might go first. You know, if there are, if you draw blue's card and you go, okay, I'll play as, as blue now, then you know it's more likely you'll play green next. But, you know, blue's still got a, a player card in the deck, so could draw could draw for them. But it just means that that level of planning isn't so certain and it's not quite so taxing, you know? It, it allows for a much easier kind of flow there. Did you find that? Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought it up because it's one of the talking points I had as well as the the player turn deck. Uh, so it has a turn order deck, as you mentioned in your description, and that's shuffled and then you reveal the top card and you take that player's turn. I really, really like that and I wasn't sure I would. I thought it would make planning a little bit difficult, but it, it makes multi-handing the game so much easier because... When you just flipped over the turn order deck and you have no idea who's going, you kind of just go, well, it's a little bit left up to the gods, you know. <laughs> I'm just going to do the best for whoever I draw, and I'm not going to plan too much on how that affects the other player because there's no guarantee they're going to be going back to back. It might be the nemesis going next, or I might be taking two turns as the same player. So in some points of the game, you kind of go, well, I'll just concentrate on this mage. I mean, you might think, well, what's the point of playing multi-handed then? You're losing out on what multi-handed brings, which is planning synergies between the the mages. But you're not, because there are other times in the game where maybe the nemesis has taken all their turns, and you know for a fact that your mages are the only cards left. And then you can plan between, and then it is important for you to look at what the other players are doing. So you kind of get the best of both worlds because of the random turn order. And I really, really like that. You, As you know, if you listen to episode seven, when we discuss Spirit Island, the asynchronous multi-handed in that game, I wasn't a fan of and neither was Scruffy at all. But yeah, like you said, this absolutely redeemed multi-handed for me. I thought it was phenomenal how it solved that problem. I couldn't agree more. Like as the game goes, you kind of start playing this little probability game because when you draw the card, you are then taking the turn for the mage who is now less likely to act again for that round. Yeah, I, I, I'm saying round kind of loosely. I mean cycle of the player deck that you know they're either taking their first turn, which is half of their turns, or their last turn for that cycle. Right. Um, so that means that you can't really plan ahead too much for them. But you do know you have the information about how many cards the other mage has left. And it's either going to be more or less than you. So you can then work off of that and be like, well, I, I know that this is this person's first or last turn, whatever. So I need to help set up the other mage. I don't really need to pay attention to what they're doing. Or, you know, they, the other mage is already gone and there's only you know, one turn left for you as a player, and that is this mage again. In which case, yes, I do need to think about this person's this mage's next turn. <laughs> it's funny saying person. I mean, whenever I say person, I think I mean the mage. You know, it's all still you, the the, the solo player. You're playing two two mages, but yeah, it, it, absolutely, what you say is is dead right. That by gaining that information as you go through the deck, it's it's really fun. And then when it flips back over and starts again, it's just well, anything goes again until the first 
turn where you get a bit of information straight off the bat. It's fantastic. It's almost like you get a little bit of a break, isn't it? Yeah. When you have very little information on who's going to go first, you just kind of, it kind of makes you go, well, I'm just going to play for now. What can I do now? What's important right now? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's a welcome break. It makes the decisions really digestible but still crunchy and interesting. Yeah, and going on from just the, the interplay between the mages there, it's the most important thing you're thinking is when are the Nemesis cards going to come up, isn't it? Yeah. Because they're in the same deck. And I really love that about the game, that it doesn't feel stale, like, okay, I've taken this person's turn, now it's the next person's turn, now it's the next person's turn. You never know who's, who's going to go next. Well, I mean, you get some information, obviously, and sometimes you know, but... There's always, there's often a bit of uncertainty there, and that kind of leads to a lot of excitement and anticipation. But also, it makes for a more interesting, I think, flow of the game where you get these kind of spikes where the nemesis might act twice in a row, or you might get to act with all your mages four times in a row, and you're on easy street. And then, obviously, the mages will, the, the nemesis will act after you, which will bring you right back down to reality. <laughs> and I really like that unequal kind of pacing i guess it certainly creates very interesting situations there are some times where the nemesis goes twice in a row and that's a really big problem and other times where it goes twice in a row and it isn't so much because you've been able to plan ahead and i think the reason that works so well is because of how the nemesis is designed so i think if we can just go into a little bit more detail about how that works because it's one of my favorite things in the game the way that the nemesis has their own it's called Unleash, right? So they will have its own power and its own attack, which is called Unleash, but it isn't triggered all the time. When you resolve the Nemesis's turn, you will first look to see if they have any cards in play, and then you will resolve those cards in play left to right, which is oldest to newest. And sometimes, if you've been a little bit behind, that can really build up, and you really don't want the Nemesis to be going twice then, because you're going to get hit hard a couple of times whereas other times you're you're able to manage those cards and get rid of them and then going twice they won't build up much so once you resolve those cards from oldest to newest you'll then draw another one and see if, if that has any immediate effect but it's just such a clever piece of design because it's just you know reading through the little effects from left to right it's always so manageable it's never difficult you it's always clear what the nemesis is going to do do you agree scruffy yeah, it's, it's one of those games where you can really tell everything at a, a glance, kind of get a, a clear thing of the game state, and you don't have to do too much analysis and working out where you are and what's going to be affected and stuff. The I, I mentioned briefly that there are three types of cards for the Nemesis. So you have creatures, attacks, and powers. And attacks just resolve immediately, and then they're done. So that's that done. Creatures and powers kind of stick around on the uh, on the map, and they resolve on the Nemesis's turn in addition to it drawing a new card, like Norm said, oldest to newest. But always there's kind of a way to mitigate them. With powers, there's often... Uh, well, I say always, sometimes the powers are just going to happen and you have to just be ready for them, which is still, I suppose, a form of mitigation. But sometimes they have a two-discard effect, which usually involves spending ether or taking other sort of sacrifices, and that means the power will not trigger. Otherwise, if you leave it, it will count down every turn and then have a nasty effect so you kind of get that lovely choice there and i want to unpack that in a bit in a, in a bit later but uh, creatures kind of work similarly that they have a health and every turn they will be doing a persistent effect until you defeat them 
which you may choose to do with your spells, or you might choose to ignore them, leave them there and attack the nemesis. The choice is yours as the as the player, which is really, really fun. And I should say that this all applies to the base game as well, what we've talked about there. All of that's in the, the regular vanilla version, as well as the legacy version, which is nice. Uh, we've both played a bit of the uh, vanilla version, um, but mainly been looking at at the legacy version i think we both kind of prefer that and we'll probably talk about that a bit later as well mm, yeah absolutely and just going back to how easy the nemesis cards are to read and to see what's going on if the turn order wasn't randomized do you think because the net is it's very clear what the nemesis is doing and easy to not easy to plan around but do you think if that turn order wasn't randomized do you think the complexity of decisions and the difficulty of the game in general would be lessened oh definitely like it would it would be a, a lot more boring wouldn't it? i mean it would still work but everything would be so predictable you know you'd you'd know that well okay i get this this mage takes a turn then this mage takes a turn then the boss takes a turn and okay so we we have you know you know exactly how much time you have to deal with each thing there's no kind of unpredictability. There. There's no no nail biting excitement. I, f- I found the best moments for me were when uh, I would say, "Okay, well, let's just leave that monster there on one health, and so long as next turn either one of my mages go, it will kill. The- we can kill that monster really easily." There's a what one in three chance that the nemesis might get to go, and then it would th- and then it would really hit and and do nasty things to me. But I'm going to just take that risk and roll the dice, and and that meant I could, for example, assign a bigger spell to do damage to the nemesis rather than waste all that excess damage on just finishing off a monster, you know. Mm-hmm. And those moments of kind of dynamic tension were where the game really shone for me, and wouldn't have existed without the the turn order deck absolutely yeah couldn't agree more and it works the same with the power cards as well sometimes you think well i've got the i've got the ether to discard that card now but it's only two more turns that's two more turns for nemesis until it triggers i think we'll be okay for now i'll spend it on something else and then you shuffle the turn order deck and it goes twice in a row and you're in all kinds of trouble you know (laughs) (laughs) been there you that you decided to take and that's that yeah, that kind of agency, that willing to willingness to gamble is exciting. It's fun. It's just fun. And then the great thing about that is, whilst the game then punishes you for making that mistake and being unlucky, you, if that happened to you and you just cycled the deck and shuffled it, flipped the two cards, even they were both Nemesis cards, what bad luck! Oh, that's terrible. But then it gives you that chance to breathe afterwards yeah. because now you know you've got four player turns in a row. You know, so whenever you ha- hit those patches of bad luck or even good luck, there is a lovely balance because n- you've hit the good luck now, you'll get the bad luck later. You've hit the bad luck now, you'll get the good luck in a minute, just immediately after as well. Not not like down the road, like straight away, it's going to swing back around for you. And then it's about making the most of that opportunity the game gives you. It feels like a real fight, like a real boxing match with an ebb and a flow and peaks and troughs and mm. yeah and it's all because of this little random player order which is such a simple idea but yeah brilliant piece of game design and like we both alluded to earlier it makes it makes multi-handing so much more bearable i think not even more bearable but actually a preference i wouldn't want to play it with just one mage i don't think no that'd be really weird i think uh, i'm glad i didn't try it but and, and you can let us know if it works but i can't imagine it i could even imagine actually 
getting on with managing to play four mages and maybe i'll once i finish the campaign i've, I've done nearly at the end now i've absolutely binged it because i had such a great time with it um but once i finished i might start again with four mages why not just to see a bit more variability and have a, have a bit more fun you know i understand that um once you finish the legacy campaign you can take the mages and use them in the base game is that right the Legacy game has rules for how you can continue to play with the components in the box. So if the Legacy version is the only version you buy, even once you complete it, you can then still play against the Nemesis again on like a like a standalone fight, which is pretty cool, I think. That is very cool. And it's it's good that they've gone to that trouble because a lot of the drawbacks of Legacy for gamers is the feeling of this this game is disposable once I've completed it, which doesn't exist in this game, which is cool. Another thing I'd like to mention is it's probably one of the most... So the, the two things that make the game really unique as a deck builder, one is the play order, which we've spoken about already, and the other is how the cards cycle and are not shuffled. So I want to just talk about what in, implications that has on gameplay and the rip, ripple effects that has on your decision-making and how the how the game handles that without creating too much analysis paralysis. Um, so if I can start with yourself, Scruffy, how did you find that rule of not shuffling the deck? It was, it was neat. It was fine. You know, it was nice to have that kind of certainty there of knowing the cards are going to come. But I didn't really think about it too much or even notice it. It didn't get into my decision making as much as I thought it would when I heard the theory. For anyone who missed what I said in the intro, it's basically that when you, in a normal deck builder, you run out of a deck you shuffle your discard in form a new deck in this you just literally flip it over in the order that you played the cards or bought the cards which allows you to kind of manipulate how the cards come out a bit which is quite nice so there might be a card for example uh, i had one that says you can discard a gem from your hand but a deck thinning uh, destroy it from the game for for the rest of that run which is obviously a card you want to put next to lots of gems so i would always when I finished my turn, wedge that card in between two gems just so I was <laughs> bound to pick it up with a gem, you know, which was just, I think it was a nice feeling of giving you a bit of control over what you were doing. For me, that was how it, how it felt anyway. It was, it was neat. It was good. It's interesting because I kind of had mixed feelings about it going in, but it kind of kind of turned around for me. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. And I think the reason I had mixed feelings is because one of my favorite things about any deck builder is the way in which you cycle your cards and you have to go all the way through your deck to get your cards back. That's one of my favorite mechanisms or my favorite, yeah, one of my favorite kind of micro mechanisms, I guess you could call it, of of a deck builder is the fact that you have to cycle all the way through your cards to use the same card twice. Um, And some of my absolutely favorite games, like like Mage Knight, which is my favorite ever solo game, plays around with that concept which is um you know in in the sense that in mage knight it's uh, it tracks what rounds you're on once you've fin- finished cycling that that concludes the round i've played other games where you're somewhat in control of either what you draw or what you discard in what order um the two games that sprung to mind before i played this was um gmt's time of crisis where you can search your deck for the card for the hand that you want or Mombasa, where you have to discard cards in a certain order. So when you draw again, you draw from a specific pile. Now, the reason I was a little bit wary is because those seem like interesting innovations, but I didn't get on with them. And I think the reason being, one of the things I really like about deck building in general is when you cycle through your cards, 
there's a lot of agency there about what you thin, what you take out of your deck, and what you buy, because you want to kind of beat the luck of the draw. You want to mitigate the luck of the draw as much as possible. That obviously doesn't exist in Aeon Zen, so I was worried that that was going to get rid of a core part of what I enjoy about deck building. But the reason I think it works so well is because it makes you make the decisions about what order you put things in your discard pile in stages. First of all, you enter the casting phase, so you, you cast your spells, you take them off, and then you decide what order you put them in a discard. So it's just a choice of one, two, or maybe maybe three things. And then what goes into discard next is what you buy. So if you're buying two cards, you just have to choose which order you want those two cards. And then you might be left with, I don't know, uh, three cards left over once you've cast your new spells. So then you just got to choose between those three. So you're never making these grandiose decisions about where you're putting all five cards. You you do it in sort of micro chunks. Does that make sense, Scruffy? Yeah, yeah. It's never overwhelming the choice for how you order the cards. There's only a few cards that you're you're choosing between how they go in and which ones you want to come up first, essentially. And any cards you buy from the supply are automatically going to come ahead of any cards you play on that turn, except the spells that you prepped last turn obviously so yeah that's interesting definitely and it kind of won me over in that it wasn't the kind of brain burny difficult decisions i thought would be it's more just kind of these nice little kind of leads you along like plants little breadcrumbs like what do you want to choose now okay that's that's cool and it feels like rewarding every time you're like okay i'll put them in this order brilliant Oh, I'm so clever. <laughs> yeah, it means that you get these kind of almost playbook turns that you set up for yourself, where you go, well, I'm going to try and keep all my big gems together so I can have a really big turn with this character. And then when it comes around, you're like, oh, yeah, I set that up for myself. It's the big gem turn this turn. And that you kind of keep that in as a recurring turn if you if you manipulate it the same way. Or you try and split them up and you go, okay, I'm going to wedge some small gems in between these big gems that are spaced out. Either way, you're setting it up for yourself and how you want it to to play and how you want it to flow, how you want your character's power to spike. I always found that I'd have little moments where I was like, okay, this character's got five cards left in their deck. I don't know what they are because you can't look at your deck um, and you kind of forget as you go. And I think that's, I thought that would be a horrible design choice because you can always look for your discard, but you can't look at your deck. So it's, is that a memory game? But no, because you don't think about it too much. And no. instead you just kind of go, ah, I think I've put most of my rubbish cards at the bottom of the deck. So I can't expect a big turn next turn, which means I need to, if I want to get rid of this, you know, give it a specific example. If I want to get rid of this power card that cost me seven Eva to get rid of, this character's not going to get seven Eva next turn. They're all rubbish cards there. And that's just something you kind of intuit as you play and as you get familiar with the deck that you've created for yourself. And then obviously the next game, you might do it differently or you might keep it the same. And uh, you get you you get this sort of personality appearing in your character's deck and in the way that they flow and the way that their cards come up and the way the power spikes. I started finding that as well, that the, the, these mages, they develop their own personality through the legacy aspects that you add on to them as they, as they go through, but also in their play style and how you choose to play their decks and what order you choose to put their cards in when you discard them. I was, I was finding, I don't know if you developed a similar strategy. It'd be interesting to, to know actually, because we haven't spoken about it. When I was playing my main two mages, I was always I always had one that was would go econ heavy early, and another that would purchase as many cheaper spells as they could, and one of the, one of their roles would be to deal with minions, and the other one 
would be to do large attacks later in the game on the Nemesis. I don't know if that's something you've done, but the fact that we were mentioning how you don't have to plan between the two mages and and help each other as much because of the turn order decks. But there is still there is still benefit of playing multi-handed because it allows you to deploy strategies like that, you know? And I was just wondering if you if you had a similar experience. Yeah, I'd imagine that's fairly typical. The game kind of encourages you to have a spell flinger mage and a, a gemmy mage, you know? I mean, one of the first sort of choices you get for abilities is do you want to give them... They get their own unique card, which develops as the game goes on and gets stronger. And you can either, when you first unlock it, give them a card that is a spell or a card that is a gem. And obviously they're going to function differently. And so when you've got two characters, it's very tempting to go... Let's give them one each, and then you can experience both sides of the of the upgrades there and both sides of the game. But obviously you are allowed as a player, and maybe you, you'd be more interested in making them both gems or both spells. That's fine. Um, and then later on, uh, you unlock things like abilities that lead to augment with a, a, a mage that's more suited towards gems and or more suited towards spells. And so you get that kind of binary there. And if you've got two characters, two mages to play as, it makes sense to have one and each on the binary doesn't it you know i'm pretty sure that's a fairly standard design and i I don't think it felt because there's so much choice in variation between it's not just a spell a generic spell it's which spell and which gem do you want your your character to have and you know there is a lot of, of variability it feels like i imagine even though we did the same thing there we probably still had a very unique setup definitely and especially because one of the legacy aspects is that the market of cards that is available changes and evolves permanently oh, yes. throughout the game yeah another thing that might even add replayability you know the uh, this is something that i kind of hinted at in the thing that between chapters so the way the market the supply is laid out the market of cards you buy is you will start the game with uh, four spells in the market three gems and two relics so gems you your things that generate your ether, your, your spending resources spells deal the damage and relics kind of have misc effects they're great but between chapters you have to you must replace two of them with four new cards that come at you which means that you must also ignore two of those new choices that come at you so you can't just put all four of those in you can't put three and you have to put two of the new cards in and and sub out two of the old cards and oh my god is that exciting so it means that half of the cards for the supplies have come at us for our for our playthroughs we haven't played with how interesting is that for a, for a choice in a, in a in a game? You know, um, it means that there's a whole kind of world of possibilities that we haven't even seen, and world of interactions for the cards that we haven't even seen in our in our playthroughs. Even though I've nearly reached the end of the thing, so when I when I inevitably do start again, which I almost definitely will, I'm going to be able to choose a whole slew of different cards to to play with. And we're just to clarify for the listeners, we're able to start the campaign again because we're playing on Tabletop Simulator, which if you've got Tabletop Sim, I'd absolutely recommend giving it a go. It's a fantastic table. If you're thinking about purchasing the game physically, there is a recharge pack available. So you can purchase that and that will allow you to sub out all the things that have been stuck over, etc. So you can play the game again and it is fairly cheap for you to purchase the recharge pack. So if you want to go through the campaign again, like I said, it's free on Tabletop Sim, but if you're purchasing the game physically there is there is resource available for you to do that as well but yeah you're absolutely right scruffy the sense of like i'm making a permanent decision that might be 
better. This card might work better than what I'm the one I'm replacing, but I might want it back and I'm not going to be able to get it back. That kind of, I don't know, like it, it's like loss aversion triggering, you know? I'm like, I'm getting, yes, I'm getting a new card, but I'm permanently banishing another card. And that's kind of horrible in a great way. The pressure it puts on you, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really forces you to look at the cards that you've been playing with in the supply and pick your favorites, you know? You go, well, which ones are definitely essential I can't get rid of? And you go, well, all of them. I, I like this one for this reason, this one for this reason. <laughs> and then you go, ah, but which ones? I, I didn't buy that many of this pile, so maybe I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll sub that out. And um, I should mention that, that you're allowed at some point to alter the configuration of what you have available. So you, there are still like limits. You have to have a certain number of each of the things like spells, relics, and gems. But the amount you have of them, you can you can kind of vary as you uh, later on in the in the thing which is quite exciting i never did i kept four spells three gems and two relics did you yeah i did exactly the same as you scruffy if i was subbing out a spell i tried to replace it with a spell just because it felt so balanced from chapter one i I was kind of afraid to push it and get to those weird fringe markets that you could end up with and see how that affects the game but you know, because we can just replay when I inevitably do, I might I might toy around with that. But for now, I have absolutely been a little bit chicken and and uh, yeah, kept it kept things pretty standard. Can we talk about my favorite mechanic in the game? Uh, sure. That seems like I would be really upset if you went through this whole recording <laughs> and afterwards said, you know what, we didn't talk about my favorite mechanic in the game. <laughs> Right, so this is something that doesn't exist in the base game and only exists in the legacy game. And it was when I kind of fell in love. So I wonder if you can guess what it is. Is it to do with the mages or the nemesis? Right, I'll, I'll just tell you because I'm, I'm not going to give you clues. It's um, <laughs> it's to do with the nemesis. It is the evolution mechanic. Yeah, yeah, that's that was my number one guess. <laughs> <laughs> so the way evolution works in this game, I mentioned in the intro that the Nemesis deck is formed of Nemesis-specific cards and a few other basic cards that carry over every game. So they, they have kind of generic effects. But they also have, some of them, the evolution effect, which means that various things will trigger it. Maybe it's just that it happens every time on that Nemesis's turn, or maybe it happens for whatever reason. You put a little sticker on the card that when you've got no more space left and you have to put a sticker on, you then look at a deck called the Evolution deck that will give you a bit of story and then a new card to replace the old one. So that card will evolve into a bigger threat, which means that every turn, every chapter thereafter, you will be, when you draw that card, encountering the nastier version of it. And oh my God, is that ever exciting? Because what that does is it makes the player have the choice for when they want to deal with consequences. And the, if you don't handle a threat in the short term by diverse, devoting resources and taking the kind of hit as it is in the game, usually, I mean, there are some of them that aren't creatures even. I say evolution, you think creatures. A lot of them are creatures, but some of them are, for example, power cards or, or whatever. And it will say to discard this, you need to evolve it. And that gives you the direct choice of, okay, do I evolve that card and deal with the problem later or let the time a tick down and have the consequences hit me now oh that was exciting for me <laughs> yeah 
it's it's an awesome awesome mechanic and the reason it's so awesome just to make it abundantly clear for players who haven't played is once a card evolves the old version of the card is banished you won't see it ever again mm. you'll permanently now have the harder card to deal with for every other game that you play so just to give a specific example i didn't evolve this card and even if i did i'm not going to tell you how cards evolve because that's that's spoilers i don't want to give you but there's one called tempting offer and it's a power card which means it comes into play with i think two power tokens on it which means in two turns you will trigger its effect its effect is something horrible like one of your mages takes two damage and has to discard their highest cost gem or something nasty like that and in order to remove it, like I say, the, the for this specific one, on any major's turn, you can just put the sticker, the evolve sticker on that card, and put it in the discard. It's done. It's out of the way. You never have to face that problem <laughs> until the card comes back again. And there's only one space on that card for an evolve sticker, which means you can get away with doing it once, and you'll have no consequences. But if that card comes up again and you evolve it, it's going to evolve. That card in my game is currently in a state of having one sticker on it, right? I evolved it once, I haven't evolved it again, and you know, this card's come up every single game since chapter two or three, and I've, you know, just taken the hit except one game where I was like, I can't take that hit, I need to evolve it. And now it's an even tenser card, even though it hasn't evolved yet. I don't know what will happen when it evolves, and I don't know if it is going to evolve. I've only got two chapters left to play, maybe I can get away with taking the hit, but... <laughs> It's very, very exciting, you know, and that is what we, uh, what, what, what I would consider to be one of the best examples of an emergent narrative in a game. The same things happened with one, uh, with a, with a creature that every time it came out, I, uh, it had the persistent effect of evolve. So if you leave it in play on the Nemesis turn, it just evolves. And the excitement for me when one of those creatures finally evolved because I either just got lazy and didn't kill it quick enough, prioritized killing other creatures. Maybe I couldn't kill it. I didn't have the right spells or or whatever. Maybe it just kind of built up over time. Nemesis took a few turns in a row and got, got his stickers and evolved. Oh, that was such a fun and exciting story. It was a more exciting story for me than the actual story of the game because that monster was personal. That power card, the tempting offer, it's a personal story. Somebody else might have just in, as quickly as they could evolved it and not dealt with the thing. And then they would have been dealing with the consequences, you know, sooner than me. It, it, everyone has their own story with those cards. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah. And I think we should point out at this point, if, you, if you're unaware of the term merchant narrative. So there's, there's, there's two, two types of narrative in, in games. There's narrative driven games. Narrative-driven games are games where the narrative is a part of the game. For example, the legacy aspects of Aeon's End Legacy make it a narrative-driven game because it has pre-written narrative that you, you follow and it tells you a story. I mean, interestingly, the, the evolution has a story narrative in the fact that when you evolve a card, there is a little story in the deck. It will tell you. So that is the story that happens, that you evolve the card and it'll say the whatever happens and big spiky things happen it's all very nasty and you, you read that that is a narrative but the emergent narrative there is the your interaction with the mechanics yeah the beyond that little card whether that story is told and when that story is told is emergent narrative yes so an emergent narrative is what comes naturally in the interaction between the player and the game, right? So you could have games with no 
narrative-driven aspects with no story behind it, but have an emergent narrative that comes out of the players playing the game. Now, what's interesting that Aeon's End Legacy does both in spades. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a good example of emergent narrative for anyone kind of trying to wrap their head around it still would be in a game like Scythe or a combat game where you have a fight with another player. That fight is an emergent narrative. Somebody wins, somebody loses. You know, it's easy to see because it's a nice conflict there. You know, that is a little story that came out of you and the other player interacting with the mechanics of the game, having a fight. That's an emergent narrative. Absolutely. And it would have been narrative driven if it was dictated by, I don't know, a card draw that explained the story behind the fight. That would be yeah. narrative-driven. Emergent, just to emphasize the differences, what comes out of the game and the player interacting with e- with each other. So, yeah, it's interesting because you said to me before the podcast that you wanted to talk about emergent narrative. And I, the first thing I thought was, I think Scruffy's got that wrong there because Aeon's and Legacy is a narrative driven game you know it's uh it tells the story tells itself to you Mm. from what you just explained there yeah i would absolutely agree that the um the way that you interact with the evolution deck does tell a story and it's a really interesting intense and sometimes nasty story (laughs) but yeah it's great yeah you're absolutely spot on that is a fantastic point of the game yeah i mean what what it boils down to is that those evolutions didn't need that story card they didn't need that when you when you evolve it you could have just said it could have just said when evolved pick this card here it doesn't need a little descriptor there and it would still have had almost the exact same impact i think in some ways i might have even preferred it because I, when i read the fiction of it when i read the the, the evolution card I, I was just skimming it. i didn't care i was excited to see what the card came up and how it looked and and then use my own narrative drive to place that within the context of the game and and my character's situation and the interactions that were unfolding. I've played other legacy games and I've seen things like, you know, choosing a new player ability or adding a new card permanently or taking away a card permanently. The evolution aspect of Aeon's End Legacy was the only part that I felt was truly unique. I haven't seen that, not only in any other Aeon's End Legacy game, but I haven't seen that mechanic in any other game. Not not even just called Evolution. I haven't seen anything try to do the same the same thing where these cards will permanently change over time, but you are in charge of how that works to a certain degree. And yeah, it's truly truly unique and worth playing the game just for that aspect i think yeah yeah i mean emergent narrative in 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 legacy games is pretty pretty common like um uh, in in gloomhaven for example your character develops and adds cards to their deck and and goes on their their narrative journey but also becomes a more complete character and, and gains more abilities and stuff as as they level up and go. And so interacting with that mechanic of leveling up and adding cards can give you a kind of uh, sense of character development there. And that also happens in Aeon's End with the way your mages are formed and the way that you add these new abilities, you add this card to your hand that is their specific personal card. It gets you to name it, which I think is absolutely brilliant you should always name things in games that's gives so much more character and flavor and i think that that mechanic of naming something is in itself emergent narrative you know (laughs) 
that then have uh, something specific and grounded and the story becomes a lot more personal and personable. Yeah, it it, it is a very good game for emergent narrative, Uh, not just within the Nemesis deck, but also within your uh, mage and how they develop. And even like we mentioned before, the supply, (laughs) that in itself is kind of a... A narrative of the world around you and and what is available to you, the powers that become available to your your character is a, a game where if you just apply a little bit of creative thinking, you can draw a lot of narrative from the different things that are happening in the game, for sure. And with a lot of ease as well, because I think you're more finely attuned to pick up on narr- emergent narrative than I am. We've uh, you know spoke before. In the in episode nine, Iron Sworn, where you interpreted the way the dice work in a more creative way than I did, and yeah, I think it's fairly safe to say that that is your more your side of personality than mine. But I felt the same way playing Aeon Zen Legacy. I also picked up on these little pieces of emergent narrative without really applying too much thinking about it at all. It just kind of it kind of comes out of the game in a really natural way, I think. But moving on from the emergent narrative side of things, obviously, as I said before, Aeons and Legacy is also a narrative-driven game. What did you think of the narrative-driven aspects like the Legacy deck and the the writing in the game as well? What did you what were your thoughts on on that, Scruffy? Um, I mean, it was it was all alright. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got to the end of the story yet. It's all very, you know, blow for blow typical. It's not, for me, the main excitement of the game. It's kind of just set dressing that allows you to easily slip into, I think, some fairly nice established conventions. I think some of the uh, Nemesis designs were really nice, but you're not cool. asking me about them. You're asking me about <laughs> the story. Yeah, I, wanna, I always want to pull in a different direction and go, I like, I like this stuff that I could, you know, transpose my own creative imagination onto. No, no, <laughs> the, the story was, was fine. <laughs> what did you think of it? Well, I think I, I have pretty much the same opinion. Um, I, I don't know what would make it great, though. I've not, I've not played any legacy game where I thought, the narrative-driven parts are what make the game. And I don't know if it can be better. If it was really in-depth and elaborate, I might complain that I don't want to read all of that. Yeah, I think too much specificity would take away some of your own creative process because you can't project what you want the characters to be and and how you want the characters to feel so i guess to some extent it it, it, by design it needs to be vague and it needs to be tropey and it needs to just allow you to you know insert your own dramatic energies into it which is fine it needs to be basic otherwise you're at risk of ludo narrative dissidence Mm. you might play your character thinking that they have X type of personality, and you find out on chapter nine that there's a really in-depth description of what how your character acts, and you think that's not them. Yeah, I just played them for eight chapters, and they don't talk like that. So I guess it kind of has to be not mediocre, but kind of basic. And what I will say is, chapter one, I was really blown away. I'm so glad you brought it up. Yeah, I was just about to, yeah, go, 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 go. (laughs) The narrative in chapter one was fantastic. It felt so cinematic. And 
Yeah, the, it was very cleverly structured, the design of the Nemesis cards and the way they came out and the way that you kept that into the story. I don't know why other chapters didn't have the same kind of structure because it was cinematic. Yeah, they framed it very well in chapter one. I'm going to do a quick spoiler here because it's chapter one. I won't spoil any others, but in chapter one, you are kind of starting in the middle of a dramatic situation where your characters are just under attack and they're surrounded by all their sort of seniors and, and teachers who are trying to trying to save the thing and they'll, they'll assist you in the fight but as as a new player and as a, you are you are able to identify with your character as a new character kind of in an unfamiliar world with an unfamiliar threat it's very performatively in sync with what you're doing as the player learning a new game as those mages facing a new threat with some new skills they don't really fully understand yet you're learning your character and how they work in the same way the mages are learning how to fight and you're right i think that the other chapters kind of never really recaptured that framing that the narrative did in the first thing and i think that is where the story kind of fell down a little bit that they all just kind of blurred into random generic situations without keeping the same sort of performative connect with you and your mage that the first chapter definitely nailed yeah the first chapter absolutely nailed and i would say although the rest of the writing is maybe a little bit average by comparison the momentum that you carry from chapter one and the excitement and the emergent narrative that comes out through the evolution deck through the decisions you make about the market and what you add on to your own character they they carry it through mm. you, that sort of momentum carries you along the rest of the journey so i wouldn't uh, let it put you off by, by any stretch of the imagination. I think one thing the writing did really well was um, very quickly established in my mind who the reoccurring characters are around us. There are kind of characters that drive the story forward that you don't get to play as, these NPCs. And by the end of chapter one, I knew them all by name. They're very distinct. They reoccur quite a lot in chapter one. And that set me up for the world building was really excellent. And for the rest of the game, I knew who everybody was. I don't know if you felt the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, personally, I think that the the, the weakest part of the game, we're criticizing it now, but like you say, the, the momentum you get and the emergent narrative kind of make up all of these criticisms because they become unimportant. But the, the, main, the main sort of weakness for me was the dialogue between the characters, which just yeah. felt really cringe but at least i knew who they were and i was yeah. able to kind of place them and decide how i almost my character felt the mages might have felt about them you know it could have been better they could have been a bit more you know well-rounded and interesting and that might have encouraged you uh, uh, to make your character have a distinct personality i think the biggest weakness is that my mages kind of do blur into one but i kind of personally i took that and ran with it i mean i i, <laughs> I made a a bit of a weird choice to name my mages blue and green and then i kind of invented the reasoning behind that in my own in my own little campaign but i won't go i won't bore you all with that stuff but yeah it, i think that did come out of the fact that the characters were very one-dimensional in the in the fiction and if they had been a bit more nuanced or whatever then that would be maybe maybe more difficult to immediately typecast them and, and latch onto who they were like you said you enjoyed but it would I think have added a, an extra level to it, which would have been nice. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess you could say the biggest triumph of the narrative-driven aspect 
is that it doesn't try to do too much. It gets out of the way so that you can explore your own story and your own emergent narrative and interact with the mechanisms that way, I guess you could say. And I think that's I think that's probably the last we need to talk about that aspect of the game. Yeah, couldn't have put it better myself. Absolutely nailed it. Brill. Before we move on from Aeon's End and we dive into the responses we got from last episode, there's one more thing I'd like to bring up and just want to bring it back to the mechanisms of the game rather than the storytelling part. And that was, you know, we've said numerous times during this recording that it's a deck builder, but in equal parts, maybe not in equal parts, but certainly enough to to mention, there's a lot of tableau building going on in this game as well. And I really, really got a kick out of it. I really enjoyed it. The most obvious is the breaches that you mentioned earlier. So as Scruffy said earlier, when you place spells, you don't cast them immediately. You place them on a breach, one that is either open or that has been focused that turn. The difference between the two is a little bit too mechanical and rulesy for us to get into on the podcast. But because you have to place them and then line them up for next turn, it makes for such an interesting decision because some of the spells will have better effects if you don't cast them immediately. If you wait a turn or two, they can do additional things. I really enjoyed that. And another part of the tableau building is the charges and you unlock special abilities and eventually you will build, you have to build up charges in order to unlock those special abilities. Now, what's interesting about the breaches and the charges is they're all either opened, focused or charged up using the economy cards, the ether, that you would normally use for purchasing other cards. I love that because a big drawback on a lot of deck builders is once you build a good deck, the economy cards, you kind of want to start trashing as soon as possible. Once you've got your point scoring cards or your combat cards or whatever kind of deck builder you're playing, your economy cards are no longer useful. But an Aeon's End, they help you adjust and build and interact with your tableau in front of you. And I thought that was such a nice design choice. I really enjoyed playing around with that. What, what Did you enjoy that aspect as well, Scruffy? Or? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The fact that you are, have a use for your spending power, even right up until the end of the game, even when you're no longer adding cards that you're going to see for the rest of the game, you actually have something else to spend it on is really exciting. <laughs> it also means that you usually, if you've ever got it's like two ether left over. You've got something to spend it on. Yes. A lot of cards don't cost that much, or especially towards the later in the game, you don't want the cheap cards, then you want the expensive cards. So that two ether would just be wasted. Having that you can spend it on a charge, and once you've got, I think it's five charges, you can then use a big, powerful, immediate ability right then, right there, that's going to have an immediate effect. It's very exciting. And it also means that when you've got your econ decks from your gem guys and you get 10 ether in a turn you can just straight away spend all of that on your character ability which feels kind of exciting especially late game where you you know you're not going to see 10 ethers worth of cards come back you know that you've still got a, an exciting use for it and like you say the thing about the breaches was really interesting i wish we had more time to unpack it this episode because it is really fun and the fact that it is just as valid a move to pick up a three ether cost card for example from the supply as it would be to then focus one of your, your your breaches because in front of you you have several breaches that the increasing cost to open but the 
sort of further to the right they are, the more expensive they are to open, usually you get benefits for them. So some spells might do more damage if they're in your third breach, or perhaps the breaches have an effect that gives you plus spell damage. But they cost more to open. And it's very important to open the breaches because you can only play spells to open breaches or breaches that you've spent resources on focusing that turn. So if you've got too many closed breaches and you want to spend play free spells, you might not have enough E for that turn to open and then you'll be stuck with spells in your hand, which is horrible when that happens. And it happened to me quite a lot. Yeah, it's very fun. Very neat little mechanics. I, yeah, I really enjoy playing around with the breaches. And like you said, I, I could spend just as long talking about the breaches as we did speaking about the narrative because it's so interesting. But yeah, it's worth pointing out that one of the biggest twists that doesn't deck building is combining it with the tableau building in front of you and messing around with that, tweaking it, and like you said, having purpose for the economy cards, even when you're at the very last turn of the game, yeah. means that it's every hand is an exciting opportunity. There are no dud cards. So yeah, brilliant. Brilliant game. I think it, 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 it's that and it's the, the game just oozes with player choice mm. that you get. So you get choice on absolutely every aspect of the game, even when you take uh, consequences, like I said earlier, and, and then trying to manipulate all that, whether you evolve a card now and take the long-term effect it almost always feels like you've got this kind of push and pull between do i take the short-term reward or the long-term reward and in some cases which long-term reward mm -hmm. uh, you know to the point of just going on the breaches one more time that when you have an open when you play a spell to an open breach you can choose when to play it you can just keep it in that breach and then it's a great way to keep for example a really weak spell just on the out of your deck so it's not going to come into your hand or you can save up a big spell and just wait for a monster to come to hit with a big spell great great choices but you can't do that with closed breaches if it's on a closed breach that you focus that turn then you have to play that spell next turn which the the choices there are so kind of multi-leveled and interesting do i you know invest the resources to focus this breach now so i can get it open and start preparing my spells or do i spend this ether on a really cool spell which is better for me right now the, the, yeah but it never feels overwhelming which is nice yes and that's the key thing i said right at the beginning the way in which it i said it about how you order your cards in your discard pile it breaks it down to bite-sized chunks those multi-level decisions you're talking about you only obviously this is an obvious statement but it's still worth saying you only make those decisions based on the five cards in your hand so yeah it's never overwhelming. This game is, it's just all pleasurable, interesting choices with some really tense moments of push and pull because of that turn order deck. It's fantastic. I'm, I've been really, really enjoying Aeon's End. Yeah, 100%. Me too. Great game. Great game. Thank you to our Discord for recommending well, reminding me that I saw this game ages ago, before, way before the, the podcast was even conceived, and somebody mentioned in the Discord, oh, you should check out Aeon's End. And I, I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> totally should. So thank you, whoever that was. Sorry, I've forgotten who mentioned it, but thank you so much. One final question about Aeon's End before we move on. If somebody was coming to Aeon's End and they've not played before, there's lots of different versions of the game. We've played the base game and the legacy version. Which of the two would you recommend as a first step into Aeon's End, Scruffy? Oh, wow. Um, um, I didn't really enjoy the base game, personally. And maybe it's because I was spoiled with the legacy game. I would 100% 
go for the legacy game. I mean, I don't know how much it costs. We played it on tabletop sim, so perhaps it's not viable and you, you, you might just want to try out the base game. But the way it introduces the mechanics, it's almost like the first couple of chapters. It's like it's teaching you the game and then it starts teaching mechanics that don't appear in the base game. And I just feel like the base game lacked the meta narratives, you know, both in terms of story narratives and in terms of emergent narratives that you were able to get in the legacy game. So for me, it's a no brainer. I hear that there is that the expansions or one of the different versions of the game, you you have a kind of campaign mode you can do. Is that right? Yeah. So I think the New Age, which was a standalone game of Aeon's End, it's called Aeon's End New Age, that introduces a campaign element, a non-legacy campaign element. And they've just also brought out another new version of Aeon's End called Aeon's End Outcast. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that also has that same campaign mechanism where you can you can turn it into a campaign game as well as playing those sort of standalone nemesis fights. So yeah, that's that's worth checking out as well. We haven't had the opportunity to play it. We've played Aeon's End a whole bunch, but we only get two weeks between each, each episode to play. So we haven't played the New Age or Outcasts, and no, nor have we played the War Eternal. So there's lots of different versions of Aeon's End. Maybe we'll come back to Aeon's End and we'll and once we played all of them, we'd do maybe like a ranking episode. I think that would be that could be fun. Uh, yeah, I'd yeah. love to try out the uh, the campaign one. I mean, if it includes anything similar to the evolution mechanic and allows you to kind of have things carry over from your previous fight and encounter, and how well or how risky you handled it, that would be what I'd want to see in in a campaign thing. <laughs> Essentially, the evolution mechanic. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> favorite but it's so well integrated it's kind of because it was my my i had to go back and play the base game i actually played the legacy game first it was so it's so well designed as a as a campaign that it's kind of bizarre to think that this came out after the base game you know it's yeah it's 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 great it also feels a little bit more polished i mean i'm I'm sorry if i mean because to be fair I, i didn't play the base game very much so perhaps I need to play it more like the same thing we've said in a lot of our episodes. You know, we do only encounter this for a, a couple of weeks. And so we're going to have some sort of biases and come in a bit, a bit janky. But when I, when I played the base game, I felt like you could almost lose at setup if you choose the wrong mages for the nemesis or the wrong mages to interact with each other. And so if you choose that randomly and, and don't put much thought into it, you could almost hit a situation where, especially if you're playing on the hard difficulty in the game, it's impossible to win. And any game that has that kind of rough design, I guess that might appeal to some people. To me personally, I think it feels like you're kind of being tested before you even start the game. And that's not something I particularly enjoy when I play a solo game. I like to have set up not be part of the game necessarily. I think that's fair. If you're listening and you think that's not fair at all and you've played Aeon's End, the base game, a lot more than we have, then feel free to uh, write in and let us know. We'd be happy to be corrected. Uh, But yeah, I think that kind of wraps up our thoughts on Aeon's End. We obviously enjoyed it, gave it some glowing analysis there. (laughs) Let's go ahead and move on to the next portion of the show where we go ahead and read the responses from last week. And we also ask you a question Uh, that we'd love for you to respond to. So, Scruffy, what is the question for this episode? So, the question for this episode is, what is your best story that came out from an emergent narrative, not from the story of a game, but from 
your interaction with the mechanics in the game? It can be solo, it can be multiplayer. What is your number one story that came from a game? Because those are the ones that are special, aren't they, Scruffy, you know? Yeah, going away from a game and, and, and just telling whoever will listen about, oh, you won't believe what happened, you know, this. Yeah, it's uh, it's the lifeblood of a lot of board games. And it tends to happen a lot in multiplayer games, but I think it, it absolutely can happen in solo games. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a solo story, I would be really interested to hear it. But if you've got a, a multiplayer story you want to share, lovely, love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. What Border Wars have you had in Twilight Imperium? What what inside jokes have occurred when playing party games like Times Up? What what emergent narratives come out of these these games that are just boxes of rules and algorithms? <laughs> it's amazing what 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 can happen. So we'd love to hear your best stories from playing games in that way. Cool. So the first email we had in was from Mark Tuck. Now, if you're Listening and you're familiar with Orchard, you may already recognize that name. That's the designer of Orchard Nine Card Solitaire game, which I thought was really cool for him to take his time out and and write into the show. Awesome. So he says, hi there. Just to say, I really enjoyed your in-depth review of Orchard and your thoughts on small footprint games in general. I agree with your view that Orchard can be played both in a relaxing, almost meditative way without too much thought beyond simply looking for the best card placement each turn and also in a more strategic way by considering how to lay for future card placements, recognising patterns that may help or hinder, and of course using rotten fruit to your benefit. Now, he goes on here and he addresses something you said about the potential score cap in Orchard. Oh yeah. He says, obviously the highest score you can get for any particular game does also depend on the cards you are dealt. Players who would like to have more of a benchmark for what is a good score can try the monthly challenges on BGG. Here they can see how they fare against others using the same deck with the same order of cards. I thought that was quite interesting. I actually knew about that and didn't mention it in the last episode, which is really silly of me. Wow, yeah, that sounds really fun. And certainly deals with that score cap problem. So I think the issue there was that each game has a potential cap for your score, but yet it uses an arbitrary score to judge your success, which doesn't mesh well with yourself but hopefully that will that will fix the problem he also goes on to say and for those who would like a win and loss condition and there's a single page challenge sheet featuring 10 games of varying difficulty each with a target score to aim for and that's available to download at bgg and he sent us a little link which i'll forward to you as well if you're interested yeah but that's really cool he goes on to say, looking forward to the, your next episode. So if you're listening, hi, Mark. Thanks for writing in. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, that was awesome. What what did you think of that, Scruffy? Yeah, that's uh, that's really, uh, really cool. Some really interesting stuff there. We'll put links to that in the description as well so that you guys uh, listening can, can check that out for all you Orchard fans. Awesome. Brilliant. The next response we got was from Peter, a.k.a. Lovelace, in our Discord. He emailed in and said... Hi, Norman Scruffy. These are my thoughts on your current listener question. A question we asked last week were, are there any games that allow you to enter a flow-like state where player agency is less important than experience in the game? And he says, I hope we talk about the same when we talk about a flow state. I personally have more, not less agency when I'm in a flow state. For reference, I mean this, and then he links in the psychology of a flow state on from Wikipedia, which again, we'll put the links to that in the description. 
He then goes on to say, I think the following quote from the wiki article is an important comment on board gaming and mental health. Cheek Sent Me High writes about the dangers of flow himself. Enjoyable activities that produce flow have a potentially negative effect. While they are capable of improving the quality of existence by creating order in the mind, they can become addictive, at which point the self becomes captive of a certain kind of order and is then unwilling to cope with the ambiguities of life. That's probably the most philosophical thing we've ever said on the show. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, I thought that was really interesting because we talk about the benefits of playing a game like Orchard and achieving a flow state. So what, what Peter here is quoting is actually it could potentially have a negative in that you can't achieve that same high Again, he does go on to say his personal thoughts, though. He says, my personal thoughts are, he thinks a flow state in board games is similar to a runner's high in running. A runner's high kicks in if you run long enough, which is at least 30 minutes for him, and with just the right training intensity. For me, board games have to be a bit longer, and the thinking intensity has to be just right, not too light, and not too AP-inducing either. I also have to be in the zone and not think about something else. Being alone helps in that regard for me. It's easier to be in a flow state if I play solo. Checking for rules takes me out of the game and out of the flow state. He says he thinks he achieves a flow state in most of the games he enjoys. Let's say anything, he rates eight or higher on Board Game Geek and that play for longer than 30 minutes. To name a few, things like Feast of Odin, Fields of Arla, Underwater Cities, Paladins of the West Kingdom, Gaia Project, Great Western Trail, and so on. That's pretty much it, but he does leave with a really lovely comment. He says, thanks for the great podcast. I really like your perspective on the games you talk about. I find your discussions to be more acute or in-depth than in most other podcasts. So, Peter, that rocks. That's an awesome, awesome answer to our question from last week. So, do you have any response to that? Because there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? Wow, yeah, Peter, that was really awesome. What a trip. Um, and that quote, wow, fantastic stuff. I mean, I think there's there's a whole series that you could do on gaming and meditation and repetitive actions and meditation. I mean, you know, essentially meditation, isn't it? Just kind of like breathing, which is a repetitive action and trying to keep that ordered and structured. And board games in themselves act as this kind of repetitive structure that you that you do over and over again until it becomes flowy and zen <laughs> and the best ones are the ones where you can switch off the part of your brain that needs to deal with the ambiguities of the world and just allow it to move those little bits of cardboard or plastic or wood across the table and roll those lovely plastic dice and and and, and just respond to the input that comes at you in a way that is pleasant and relaxing and natural and simple and obvious in the way that we can't often with the inputs that come at us in life yeah there's a hell of a lot to unpack there and it's a really interesting topic and conversation and future episodes maybe yeah for sure i'd love to i'd love to talk about this more and you know maybe even go into the tactility of games and and, and things like that uh, whether they're board games or even video games you know and using controllers or keyboards it's, it's all 
kind of connecting with an, a, a physical object in a way that is reassuring and familiar. Yeah, um, and mechanics obviously link to that as well. And also the negative impact that Peter was alluding to there as well, and whether that applies to board games and if it does, you know, what, what we can do about that. I think there's a lot to unpack. So, yeah. yeah. Obviously, that that sort of certainty and order can become addictive, and 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 escapism is real. You know, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely a victim of that. I'm very self aware that I, I that I I crave <laughs> any sort of stimulus that is separate from the real world and takes me away from it a little bit and immerses me in something different. And I think board games are absolutely a part of that excellent yeah can't wait to unpack that more but for now we'll just have to say that was a fantastic response to last episode and uh yeah thank you very much for writing in yeah thank you so much for writing in and yeah thank thanks thanks to you guys for listening yeah i think that's all we've got time for so before we leave you where can you write in well you can write in at always one podcast at gmail.com uh send us an email using that address you can also write in on Facebook. The links to our Facebook are in the description. You can also follow us and DM us on Instagram. We're at Always Player One Podcast. And we're also on Reddit. Our username is always underscore player underscore one. And we often post in the solo board gaming subreddit. So make sure you, you're in there as well. And don't forget to check out our Patreon. It's www patreon.com forward slash always player one podcast if you sign up to any tier you will be invited to our planning phase episode which will be out next week and again that is just a behind the scenes look at how we decide what we're going to be covering next episode so we actually don't at this point know what we're going to be covering and that's what we're looking to discuss unpack look up some games look up some topics and see what we come out with so we'll see you there in a week make sure you check us out it's www patreon.com forward slash always player one podcast that's everything for this episode thank you so much for joining us yep thank you guys so much for listening you're all absolutely awesome and it's awesome to have you guys tuning in and listening to us talk about solo ball games have a great week thanks for listening if you'd like to support the show don't forget to check out our patreon page the links to that are in the description We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Always Player One. Until then, reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or by email to keep the conversation going.